How can we preach in a way that starts with the body, with the presence of the living Christ in the sermon? Jerusha Neal, Assistant Professor of Homiletics at Duke Divinity School, explores embodiment in her recent book, The Overshadowed Preacher, Mary, the Spirit, and the Labor of Proclamation. In her work, she explores the preacher's living relationship with the resurrected Christ. Turning to Mary's spirit-empowered pregnancy, Jerusha challenges the historical propensity to silence, idealize, and ignore real preaching bodies, particularly the bodies of women, and proposes a new preaching metaphor to reclaim a fully human homiletic. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Trisha, thank you for joining me today to have this conversation. I'm excited to, to talk with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Glad to um, get to talk about your new book. You have a fairly new book came out in the last few months called The Overshadowed Preacher. And the subtitle um, is Mary, the Spirit, and the Labor of Proclamation. That's right. And and in the book, I mean, an overgeneralization is you spend a lot of time unpacking the traditional assertion that Jesus Christ is present mm. in the preaching of a sermon, mm. um, that where the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus is there in our midst. And would you tell us what led you to explore this conviction so mm. deeply, and then why you wrote, why you wrote the book? So. Um... You know, I'll start by by speaking to my experience as a teacher of preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are three things that I see happening in the world of, of preaching and the teaching of preaching that I found concerning. And I talk about this a little bit in the first chapter. Yes. Um, there is dangerous preaching where um, there is a, a way in which preachers can over-identify or substitute their own voice for the voice of Jesus, speak for Jesus in a way that norms their own experience, norms their reading of scripture um, in ways that can be abusive in terms of power and you know manipulation, mm-hmm. these kinds of things, divinizing the preacher's sort of body. Um, there's also disappearing preachers, right? So there's dangerous preachers, that just there's disappearing preachers uh, that have a a a different relationship to the body of Christ, the presence of Christ in the sermon, um, where where there's almost a way in which, again, uh, they want to disappear so much in the preaching event um, that it's actually another way of saying that Jesus sort of um, is the same thing as their performance. I I mean, you know, you sort Mm -hmm. of try to be erased, but it's, it's another way of divinizing the preacher, whether you're um, super powerful out in front or you're completely sort of um, negating your agency in the experience. Um, the third thing, though, that really bothers me is the disillusioned preacher. Hmm. And, and this is the preacher that I, I see more and more of in my classroom. And this is the preacher that is really asking, what difference does preaching make? Um, yes, what difference do I make? But but what difference does this work make in the world and in the church? And and I think, and this is at the heart of the book, that affirmation in the Protestant Reformation that preaching has a sacramental function that there is mm-hmm. something about the real presence of Christ, active, alive, speaking in and through the sermon. Um, that that actually provides a corrective to each of those 
examples that I name. Um, it chastens the dangerous preacher. Uh, yeah. It calls the disappearing preacher out of hiding. And it also speaks a concrete word of hope to the disillusioned preacher. And, and so I think that um, gets at the heart of, of what I cared about in this book and why I wanted to write it. That's great. Thanks. For whom did you write this? I mean, who do you hope will pick this up and read it and engage um, with these ideas? I'll give two examples. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first is I did write it for teachers of preaching. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was speaking into my own um, homiletic guild, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, because I I think there are ways, serious ways, in which the, the teaching of preaching has not taken seriously this theological affirmation of Christ's presence. And that's played out not just abstractly. I mean, often we say the right things about preaching, but in terms mm-hmm. of how we teach rhetoric and what we do and how we how we talk about the body and how we talk about performance, there has almost been a functional atheism in, in how preaching is taught. And mm-hmm. um, so what, part of it is a critique into the homiletic guild. Um, and, and I'll just say briefly, this might come up later, but the, that functional atheism, the ethical implication of that is that things like norms of whiteness or, you know, cultural propriety begin to stand in, Mm -hmm. um, for, um, these, this deep theological dependence on a living God. Mm -hmm. But the other person that I wrote it for, and you'll you'll see this, I think, in the writing of the book itself, are students very much like a student I had years ago. Um, you know, there are times at the end of the class where I'll ask people to turn in anonymous questions. Mm-hmm. And one student scratched on a little piece of paper, didn't know who wrote it. Um, do you really believe it? Mm-hmm. That stuff about God working through us. Um, do you really think that's true? which struck me as a very brave question. It's a brave question when you see the ways in which preaching has been uh, co-opted for the purposes of propaganda and political posturing and uh, the the defensiveness and protection of privilege. Um, It strikes me as very brave when a preacher knows her own limits and um, her her own messy fingerprints and, and really wondering, am I called to this? And, um, and for the preacher who stands up, my goodness, this last year sometimes Mm. sits down in front of a zoom screen Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, and looks out at a a diminished congregation Mm -hmm. and really wonders, God, you know, you say your spirit is here. You say you're real, but I am not seeing the tangible marks of success, you know, and glory that others are seeing. Are, are you present here in my body in this proclamation now and and so there's a very tender personal audience intended and there is a more um there's there's an audience of my peers that i'm 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 pushing back and saying Mm -hmm. we we need to have a serious conversation about how preaching is taught Mm -hmm. you you open the book and, and and use um some some of your personal story about uh, where you were living and your transition from place to place. And you you talk about, and I got thinking about it when you were talking about this person who asked this question, do you really believe it? And when an individual struggles with that question, but you talk about the community 
and the communities in these places where you transition? And how, how might the community also carry the answer to the question of do you believe it? Or when, when you're wondering if you do, uh, that the community does. I mean, talk a little bit about that story, mm-hmm. about, about those communities and how they sort of carried you a bit in that time. That time. So I did my doctoral work at Princeton. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I did my doctoral work, my husband was uh, pastoring a little church in Belleville, New Jersey, just outside of Newark, mm-hmm. um, that was made up of, I mean, we arrived probably, there were about nine native languages represented. Um, and, 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 and it was in many ways a, a struggling um, immigrant community and, and really trying to make sense of their connectedness to each other, um, their sense of mission. Mm-hmm. And it was a real powerful learning experience that God gave us that at the same time I was sitting in those Princeton doctoral seminars, mm-hmm. um, that I was going home to communities that were uh, struggling with life and death, death issues, that, mm-hmm. um, you know, issues on the street outside of our church, issues of addiction and hunger and homelessness, those things were very present. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so these questions of preaching's import and mm-hmm. impact, mm-hmm. Um, I, I had as, as potent of uh, a doctoral seminar, let's say, yeah. In, right. in that location, as I, yeah. as I did not to downplay the importance no. of the seminar, but I mean, it was the synergy there. The synergy between the two, yeah. And then after that, uh, my husband and I taught for three years in the Fijian Islands in the South Pacific. And mm. we lived in the oldest pastoral training school in the country. It was sort of a village setting where you're woken for morning prayer at 5 a.m. with a beating drum and you have classes, you know, in the morning after chapel. Uh, but then in the afternoon, students work in the fields because so many of them are going to such remote areas that part of the pastoral training is knowing how to grow your own food um, so that if the paycheck doesn't come, you can still provide for the family. I mean, it's, it's yeah. really holistic in every sense of the word. Yeah. And, and those communities um, help to reframe what it is we talk about when we talk about how bodies matter to preaching right. and whose bodies matter right. <laughs> in That's preaching right. and, and whose bodies are eclipsed by the mm-hmm. way preaching is currently taught. Yeah. No, that's great. In chapter one, you, um, you talk about um, how uneasy borders help us understand um, Jesus's body, bodily presence. And uneasy, we often think of as a negative thing, but you're using it in a positive way. And you, could you explain how you're using uneasy and what are uneasy borders and what does that have to do with, with Christ's bodily presence? Thank you. I, yeah. I, I mean, essentially what I mean is real. Yes. <laughs> it's okay. a real person. Okay. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Because, because um, we often think of bodies like, um, like statues, sort of yeah. like rigid, knowable borders. Um, and, and we discount their permeability, their relationality, uh, you know, 
just because I'm a preacher, I keep using alliteration in this book. Um, my husband laughs at me, but another piece of the alliteration where you know I, I try to get at what I mean by the uneasy borders of materiality, and I have these three Ps. Bodies are particular, mm-hmm. meaning they they have they do have form. They have a particular relation to context that isn't just dissolved into what's around it. Mm-hmm. They're permeable meaning they're vulnerable to what's outside of them, and they're provisional, meaning they change. Now, those words, particular, permeable, provisional, means that there's a hiddenness to bodies because you when there's some, because you have a body, yes, I can know things about you. I can see your brown hair and I can see uh-huh. your glasses. Um, but it also means there's parts of you, how you think, how you feel, that are hidden from me. The, the place where your body is located, it I can't take up that space at the same time you do. And when Jesus becomes fully human, when he mm-hmm. takes on flesh, he embraces that kind of uneasy. And, and I, I part of what I'm pushing back against is a kind of abstraction of paradox. We're, we're used to thinking of Jesus's body as you know, divine human paradox, both at the same time. But but what I, I'm looking for a word that describes, <laughs> let's just take the human part how that human body is related in time to other bodies. It Mm -hmm. it is both itself and Mm -hmm. in one way hidden, and it also impacts and is impacted by the world. That's part of what Jesus um, gives us when he, when he becomes flesh. And um, I think finally, the reason I liked the word uneasy is that it gets at the cost of that. It gets at the cost of having a fully human, real Jesus as the one that we follow and affirm as part of the Trinity. Um, And it it also gets at the fully human cost, um, the cost of being a fully human preacher. Um, it, It isn't an easy, it would be much easier in some ways for me to deny the impact that my congregation has on who I am and what I say, or to pretend I'm autonomous or isolated or individual, um, or to simply do what they want me to do, right? To just sort of become mm-hmm. dissolved in the, to their expectations. The hard part is figuring out how to be relational and really live in communion both with yeah. the human body um, of this congregation and also with a living God. You take up the importance of Mary. Yeah. And we Protestants aren't always so good with Mary. That's right. So what what have we, I mean, speaking as a Presbyterian, as a Protestant, what have we lost by avoiding the subject of Mary's bearing body rather than uplifting mm-hmm. this complex human woman? Um, you know, Protestants have gotten so good at talking about what they don't believe about Mary. <laughs> Um, there are times in which they they lose the constructive power of what Luke does with her in in his gospel um there there is a powerful way in Luke Acts which is really where I focus my my attention um that Mary is foreshadowing the outpouring of the spirit in Pentecost. In fact, he, you know, Luke places her there at the start of Acts as well, yeah. almost to underline the, the connection. Um, and, and I think in doing that, you begin to see Luke's 
uh, pneumatology emerge mm-hmm. through this mm-hmm. reflection on how the spirit, what the spirit is for in Luke and Acts and how it impacts human bodies, how it doesn't. She doesn't disappear. She doesn't become more or less than human, but the spirit brings her into embodied relation with Jesus Christ. And, mm-hmm. um, and I argue in the book that that is similar to the ways in which the spirit works with Axis preachers and with the church leadership, mm-hmm. that the spirit brings um, human bodies into relationship, embodied relationship with the person of Jesus without dissolving their humanity. And and yeah. and and actually, that's that sounds like highfalutin theology, but it becomes just critical when we yeah. talk about the ethical issues of uh, privilege, power, authority. Um, whiteness, I mean, you name it, colonialism, I mean, all of it, that becomes really important in all of that. Yeah. You talk about bearing, you talk about labor. Um, What are some of the connections that you see between Mary's spirit-empowered pregnancy and the preacher's spirit-filled labor of proclamation, right? Mm -hmm. Can you get it, just dig in a little bit more into what you've, you've alluded to so far? Well, so Beverly Gaventa's work on on Mary, um, she's the place where I, you know, I first n- noticed this sort of glaring resonance uh, between uh, Peter's reframing of Joel's prophecy in Acts two, mm-hmm. and Mary's affirmation and naming of herself as Dule of the Lord, handmaid of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Peter says, "You, know, you're uh, my my." Male servants and female servants will prophesy through the power of the Spirit. And that yeah. word, uh, female servant, is the same word that Mary uses when she says, here I am, the handmaid of the Lord. Yeah. Um, so there is actually in the text a material connection yeah. <laughs> between this work of Spirit-filled prophecy and the work that Mary does, this bearing of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, and I think one of the one of the similarities that I, I begin to touch on is the fact that in both of those accounts, it, in spite of the fact that you know people think about the incarnation as Christ being totally present, and after the ascension, Christ is completely gone. Mm-hmm. You know, Luke messes with those categories. Um, Jesus is sort of hidden and visible in mm-hmm. in both of those narratives. Jesus has to be discerned by the power of the Spirit. Um, it's not immediately obvious that's what that what's happening to Mary is some miraculous pregnancy. In fact, it looks a lot like scandal, mm-hmm. uh, similar to the kind of affirmation that, that the preachers um, in Acts are giving to this resurrected God that is active on the scene and yet somehow absent as well. Um, Brittany Wilson, uh, who did her doctoral mm-hmm. work um, at Princeton just has a new book out called uh, The Embodied God, mm-hmm. and she does a deep dive from a biblical studies perspective into Luke and Axe's treatment of Jesus's body. And um, interesting. I'll take a step back. So first is part of what it says about Christ. There's some similarities, but it, there's also a way in which Christ, in both of those accounts, uh, the language I use in the book is leaves marks. Mm-hmm on human bodies. It's not that human beings become Christ or dissolve into Christ. It's that because of these uneasy borders, particular, provisional, permeable, um, Jesus having a body impacts and shapes the bodies of those that come into embodied relation with him. So for example, you get a kind of reflexive 
um, witness in Mary's body to Jesus's body, not because she's so holy or because, you know, she is, um, you know, reading from a script or, you know, following a cue, um, playing a a part. There's a reflexivity because Jesus's um, particular body has an impact on her. And, and leaves its marks on her. And so you see these resonances where, you know, why, why is it, for example, that the virgin birth matters in Luke? Um, well, I mean, matters because it witnesses to the power of God, yes. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it also is this, again, foretaste of the kind of scandal and struggle that that Jesus goes through in the crucifixion where there's no real proof mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, what what it looks like is that you know Christ's calling has brought him to this place of ridicule and misunderstanding and there is a way in which because that's who Jesus is Mary's inviting of him into her life means that her life is impacted by that scandal and there are ways in which her experience becomes a witness to what's mm-hmm. coming. And again, not in ways that substitute for it, but in ways that are impacted by it, transformed by it. I think that's the way you think about preaching. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks that look at Acts and they look at the, the sort of leadership of Acts, the preachers and Acts, mm-hmm. and they sort of imagine that those preachers... Um, are like actors in a play and they have Jesus's history and now it's their turn to sort of play the role of, you know, what would Jesus do in here? Now I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I think actually acts gives a much more complicated picture than that. Jesus mm. is a real active presence on the scene and people are being impacted by Jesus's action. Yes. His story and history, but also his present tense presence on the ground, you know, you have the skies open and you have Jesus, you know, ask Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's a living edge to Christ's presence that that I think calls preachers to much more than playing a part or playing a role. It calls them to a present tense kind of dependence, a present mm-hmm. tense kind of hospitality, a present tense kind of discernment in the yeah. world. So tell me, you talk about um, fully human preaching. Tell me what this Luke Acts, Mary um, Mm. labor has to do with, how does that lead you from that into this idea of human preaching? What is that? So one of the reasons why I think Mary's a really good conversation partner for preachers Mm -hmm. is I think actually a lot of the things that Protestants have critiqued the most in Mariological traditions mm-hmm. we have our own versions of in relation to preachers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are we and we have eyes for it in other people's traditions when we look at Mariology. We'll say, yeah. "Oh, well, look, she's a little more perfect, a little more pure. She has a little more power in her prayers, and yeah. you know, cluck, cluck, cluck. Isn't that you know naive or whatever?" Yeah. <laughs> but then we turn around and in in the teaching of our preachers. We may not say this with our theologies, 
but we promote it with our practices. Mm-hmm. It's your job to bring it home, your job to be scintillating and entertaining, your job to fill the pews, your job to be perfectly holy, your job to be the mediatrix that brings everyone together. Um, and again, we have nice theological language, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that says that's not true. But then when you really talk to preachers about the pressures that they feel and and what they really think their job description is, many times these shadows begin to emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think looking and, and reclaiming the way Luke and Acts does the full humanity of mm-hmm. Mary and the mm-hmm. full humanity of preachers gives us new vision for a Christ that is bigger than us and a Christ that is really present on the scene. Um, that, I mean, there's great hope in it that, that, that actually your job is not to fill Christ's shoes or embody Christ. That's mm-hmm. not the job description of Mary or the preachers. Your job is to be an embodied witness to the Christ that is changing you. That's right. And that is working in you. And, and so, um, and, and ironically, and, and this is, it's like the canary in the coal mine. What I, what I'll often find, and it works both ways, preachers that have a hard time being in fully human relationships with their congregations have also a difficult time with that kind of immediacy and vulnerability, um, with a living God and preachers that are struggling you know, in relation sort of theologically to understanding their body in relation to Christ's body, uh, do we need to stand in for Christ or whatever? Often that leads to asymmetries of power in relation to their congregation. And Mm -hmm. so there's a, there's a direct tie between ethics and theology here. Yeah. The way you're talking about Mary is, I find actually really helpful. But sometimes we've talked about Mary in ways that are not. Yeah. Um, so how how has the particularity of Mary been used to both mm-hmm. uplift women, like you think, <laughs> and harm women? That's right. And what do we need to do to make sure that our own um, reflection upon or use or discussions of Mary and, and, and our own identification with her as spirit-filled mm-hmm. preachers, how do we make sure mm-hmm. that we avoid the damaging side of that? So one of the things I talk about in the book is the way in which Mary has been used to regulate, yeah. um, particularly women's yeah. bodies, um, as a norm or or as an ideal. Mm-hmm. So folks that either really stress her sort of natural, maternal, whatever, and folks that sort of stress her uh, the virgin birth or sort of the impossibility of, or uniqueness, I'll say, mm-hmm. of, of her experience, the people that stress those things. What's at stake often is a norm or idealization of women's experience that's been profoundly damaging. And I, I think that a way forward, and this, this grows out of my, you know, my doctoral advisor's mm-hmm. work, uh, Brown on metaphor, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, that a much more potent way to begin to relate to Mary is as a person uh-huh. where you ask the question, so in what ways are my experiences similar and in what ways are they different? And, and one of the, one of the um, 
I think, takeaways of working with Mary and Axis preachers is you begin to break down binaries of or fetishisms, I'll say, around motherhood or female form. Mm -hmm. And you begin to look at, oh, there's actually lots of similarities around a spirit-filled vocation and this work of being an embodied relation with an incarnate Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, There are things that I would say that Stephen knows about Mary's experience that... um, Myself, who has born a baby naturally, just that experience mm-hmm. of naturally giving a baby, doesn't know. I don't, th- there are, and there's access points that people who have a, a different um, experience of what it means to bear the word by the power of the spirit have that, that yes, intersect mm-hmm. with the work of mothering in certain ways, but also disrupt it. Um, one of the interesting things in my classes is, um, that often I find that students who uh, come from queer backgrounds or are students who uh, have very untraditional birth narratives mm-hmm. find a great deal of connection with this woman who receives this non-heteronormative call yeah. to bear a child for the sake of the community and for the sake of the word of God and, um, and agrees to do it. And, and so for example, I mean, um, there was a, a, a man, you know, male partner and they have children mm-hmm. who, you know, the story of Mary opens up for him what, you know, yeah. um, this whole, um, window into his calling as a parent that doesn't fit into the norms of society. On the other hand, you'll you'll talk to someone who received a call to preach late in life and never really had support from their family, uh, never had children. And we'll say, you know, I actually, there there is something that Mary knows about that experience of not really having someone to celebrate her call um, and, and not, not fitting the norm. I think, and this is with human bodies too. You know, when, when we begin to think in terms of, okay, um, what is it that this person's life experience, how does it intersect with mine and how is it different? Mm-hmm. That simple allowing of particularity, but also a, a, like listening for shared common spaces, mm-hmm. that opens up illuminations, not only in the biblical text, but also in our ability to connect with each other. Mm-hmm. I think that's a place to begin. And it's also much humbler because then Mary can't be, she's not the rule for everyone. She is a witness yeah. to a particular way in which Jesus impacted her life. And so then I think to myself, okay, well, how is Jesus impacting my life? How, you know, I, it's the same Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so there might be resonances in my experience to Mary's, but it's also going to be different because I'm a different person and it's a different time and place. Yeah. That's great. You alluded, uh, you used this word before, and I need to bring it up because it is in the title. You you talked about shadows, and the book is mm-hmm. The Overshadowed Preacher. Yeah. So I think it'd be important for you to explain a little bit of what that is and who's who's doing the over, who or what is doing the overshadowing, and, and how does that tie in to some of the things you've been talking about? Thank you. I, <clears throat> I wanted this to be... Um, the beginning of a pneumatology for mm-hmm. preaching. 
And, mm-hmm. and so uh, I love Luke's language of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and what does, what does it mean yeah. <laughs> to be overshadowed by this, by this spirit of God? Um, but I didn't get very far into that language. I mean, shadow is also an ambivalent term. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like an easy, yeah. um, where I began thinking about the false shadows mm. that preachers, again, um, trade for the overshadowing of the spirit, because frankly, the overshadowing the spirit, um, that's a challenging thing. It's a Uh challenging thing. It's, it's precious and holy and beautiful. It's also not easy as Mary's life attests. Um, and, and I, I began to think of it particularly in relation to the ways that preaching, uh, and the teaching of preaching has thought about rhetoric Mm. that, that many times, I mean, there's a lot of false shadows you can talk about, but there are, there are particular ways in which preaching has handled the bodily part mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of this work mm-hmm. where the spirit's presence has been outsourced mm-hmm. to the body in various ways, in ways that finally I don't think are sustainable for preachers. I think it burns them out. And interestingly, and this is another connection to Mary, if you look at the history of rhetoric, the, the metaphors that are used to describe the, the fleshy part mm-hmm. of proclamation mm-hmm. very often use these idealized feminine language That's interesting. sort of metaphors. So, for example, Calvin will talk about the powerful handmaid, yeah, right? This right. handmaid that is completely subservient, but also powerful that adds the zest and the verve to the word and, yeah. and must, you know, do everything expertly in order to make sure that dinner gets on the table and everybody's happy. Um, you know, you'll, you'll talk <clears throat> and, and this is, this is a subtle one, but I think it's, it's actually been, um, I, I think it's been dangerous in the discipline. Yeah. There is this way in which, uh, the metaphor of the incarnation itself has been used to talk about the relation between a preacher's words and the preacher's body. Um, Augustine is the first one to kind of make this connection. But of course, the, the problem with that <laughs> is that um, you sort of you sort of substitute Christ's humanity gets lost, like my humanity replaces Christ's humanity in that metaphor. Yeah. So it's sort of the the text of scripture is the divine part and I'm the human part and you stick us together and somehow you get Jesus. Now, I don't think that's what Augustine meant, but that's often how it's used. Um, This kind of sense in which my humanness is what gives Jesus's divinity form. And that means you've done away with the particularity of Jesus's human body and his human witness. And you've made yourself some kind of immaculate flesh, some sort of, perfectly holy substitute of Jesus's body, which you're, ki- you're just not going to be able to pull that off. Yeah. Uh, you're going to go into hiding. You're going to be in therapy. You're going to burn out after five years. You're going to lead a double life. I mean, it's a mess. Um, and, and finally, and this is in the most, you know, kind of in, let's say the last 20 years um, in traditions that have talked about post-liberalism, um, you know, there is a kind of desire that, to, to understand preaching as really being about a teaching of a mother tongue mm. um, that, that Mary is kind of a way to understand the ecclesial, you know, the church as a whole. Mm-hmm. 
And the preacher's job is to teach that mother tongue. So to know the expectations of the community, to um, you know, know what makes people nervous and what doesn't, to uh, negotiate all those expectations expertly and well, yeah. and to create a lineage in the church. And that's finally the goal, the sustainability of the grammar. And I think all of those emerged for very good reasons. They were trying to grapple with this question of real presence. Uh-huh. But I think they ultimately fall short of the mystery described in Luke and Acts, that, that there, is, there is something actually more profound, more risky, more messy, uh-huh. and more beautiful that we are called to. Yeah. Um, so that's, that gets a little bit of that. In all of this and talking about, you talk about embodiment and, yeah. and the embodied preacher and what is embodied preaching. You have a number of conversation partners in the book, and you've named mm-hmm. some of them. Um, yeah. Beverly Gaventa, Sally Brown, um, uh, and others. And you, Carl Bart pops up here and there. Yeah. So talk to me yeah. a little bit about Bart and um, what, what you drew from him in, in connection to discussing embodied preaching. So he's, you know, Bart's tricky mm-hmm. in relation to preaching mm-hmm. because there's there's his theology in the dogmatics and then there's homiletics yeah. where it's sort of distilled and then there's what he actually does in sermons. Mm-hmm. And I think... That's why I'm asking the question. There is something different happening in all of those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to get... I, you know, I didn't want this project to be a wrestling match with, with Bart. No, 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 no. Um, but in part because I think when you go to his description of the three forms of the word of God, I think finally when you, when you really carefully read that section, he stays true to a reformed understanding of kind of a sacramental relationship mm-hmm. um, in and through mm-hmm. by the power of the spirit mm-hmm. um, kind of relationality of those three forms of the word of God in ways that don't map directly onto kind of an incarnational model. There is not just a simple substitution yeah. between, yeah. you know, preacher and Christ. Yeah. That that's not what he's getting at. Um and so, but 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 interestingly, when he goes to sort of flesh that out in his homiletics, that complexity gets, I, I think, muted. Mm-hmm. And and I think what you find are these he's so afraid of the dangerous preacher. Yeah. That that he he sort of flattens his own theology to kind of make sure that doesn't happen. And yet, when you look at what he actually does in lived spaces, and I'm thinking here of work like Angela Hancock's work, I'm mm-hmm. thinking also of, I have a doctoral student, Sarah Job, um, who is going to give a lecture at um, the Carl Bart Society meeting mm-hmm. this fall on uh, Bart's prison sermons. Mm-hmm. When you When you pay attention to what he does in context mm-hmm. in lived event, when you pay attention to his body, yeah. um, what you find is that complexity bubbles up again. Yeah. And um, there is a lived um, wrestling mm-hmm. with what does it mean to witness to a living Jesus yeah. in this body, in this place, in this time, yeah. through this text. So I think it's really easy to look at a book like this and and see it as kind of top down, mm-hmm. to see it as 
you know, that, okay, we're going to reflect on Jesus's body and what Jesus's body means for preaching. And then we'll sort of, you know, um, see what that means for human, human bodies. Um, but I work in kind of an inductive way through the book. Yeah, it's not a how-to. It's not a step-by-step. It's not a no. how-to. No. No, it's, not, no? it's not. But in, but inductively, I work toward, I think, an affirmation that rises out. I guess probably in the fifth chapter or something. But, but where, what it gets to is this. When practical theology stops being fully human at a human level mm-hmm. in its relation to other marginalized bodies and relation to other traditions, mm-hmm. What I argue is that actually practical theology loses that kind of permeability, provisionality mm-hmm. in relation to a living God. Yeah. And, and so there's a lot at stake, I would say, for practical theology in these conversations we're having right now mm-hmm. about, um, as I said, privilege, whiteness, yeah. colonialism, um, the, the hidden norms, the hidden shadows yeah. that keep us in sort of rigid roles rather than this vulnerable engagement with the world because as as we allow our bodies and the bodies of our ecclesial spaces to harden it's not just that we're closing ourselves out to the world Um, we are closing ourselves off from transformative encounter um, with the god that is desperate to uh, be in relation with us Mm -hmm. um, to leave marks on our bodies and and so there's actually a deep connection between those mm-hmm. and, and I think that's that's what I would want people to hear that's great. thank you Jerusha you bet I've enjoyed it you've been listening to the distillery interviews are conducted by me Dale Rounds and me Sushama Austin Connor and I'm Sherry Osting I'm Omar Peterman and I am in charge of production like what you're hearing subscribe at Apple Podcasts Stitcher or your preferred podcast app The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.